Welcome to Understand Murdoch, a podcast from The Post and Courier, South Carolina's largest newspaper. Our award-winning reporters have spent more than a year digging into the Murdoch saga to bring you the latest news and in-depth analysis as we covered the story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's rural low country. And now we're here to provide quick daily updates on Alec Murdoch's highly anticipated double murder trial in Colleton County. Hi, welcome to Understand Murdoch. I'm Nathan Stevens, one of your hosts. I'm here with Jocelyn Greshik, who's part of our team of reporters covering the trial. Jocelyn, we're back in Walterboro for another week of testimony, but I heard today got off to a very rocky start. Tell us what happened. Hey, Nathan. So before jurors were brought inside the courtroom today, Judge Clifton Newman let everyone know that two of them had tested positive for COVID, along with a court employee. Oh, no. Were those two jurors dismissed? Yeah. So Judge Newman apparently dismissed them immediately. He said they're getting advice from a doctor who tested each of the remaining jurors this morning and The judge said that the doctor recommended everyone gets tested again on Wednesday, as we know symptoms can develop days after you're exposed. So what does this mean for the trial's future? Well, I think a couple of things. So Judge Newman quickly moved two alternate jurors onto the regular panel. How many of those are left? So we started with 12 regular jurors and six alternates. But if you remember from last week, one juror had to get dismissed because they went to the emergency room and Judge Newman had already replaced them with an alternate. So with the addition of today's two alternates becoming regular jury members, that means there are only three alternates left. Okay. What would happen if, let's say, four jurors tested positive for COVID and they need four of those alternates? Well, I think that's the really big concern here because they don't have four alternates anymore. And there must be a full panel of 12 jurors to reach a verdict. And, you know, if they don't have those numbers going into deliberations, it could force a mistrial. And if that happens, prosecutors may not want to try this case again. You know, it's already been three full weeks of a massively expensive trial for both the prosecution and defense teams. And it's hard to imagine completely starting over, you know, not to mention there were already concerns of having to select 18 impartial jurors for such a widely publicized case. You have to think the case has only grown in popularity since it began. There are lines outside the courthouse starting at seven every morning and tens of thousands of people are tuning into live streams each day. Wow. I imagine it would be even more difficult at this point to select a new new panel of jurors from scratch. Yeah, I think so too. And how did defense attorneys and prosecutors react to this news? So both defense attorney Dick Harputlian and lead prosecutor Creighton Waters seemed to be on the same page about a few things. They were worried about the possibility of a mistrial and even suggested delaying proceedings for a few days to wait for jurors to be tested again. They also asked Judge Newman to consider a mask policy or even enforce some social distancing inside the courtroom. And what do you mean by that? 
Well, like we just talked about, as this trial has gone on, it's only grown in popularity and interest in terms of people wanting to come down to Walterboro and watch the proceedings in person. I've noticed spectators have started lining up as early as seven in the morning just to get a seat inside the courtroom, which fits about 200 people. One woman even told me last week that she arrived around 7.15 and was already the 41st person to be waiting in line. Dang. Yeah. So the attorney suggested to Judge Newman the possibility of maybe limiting the number of people who could be allowed inside to watch, but he declined to do this or also issue any sort of mask mandate. Instead, he just encouraged everyone to mask up. Okay. Can you walk us through the day in terms of testimony then? Sure. So jurors heard from State Law Enforcement Division agent Rachel Nguyen, who's an expert in forensic serology, which is the study of blood. And she conducted a number of presumptive tests for blood on evidence in this case, which indicates only the possibility of human blood. She sent most of that evidence on to SLED's DNA lab for further, more in-depth testing. Agent Nguyen did do a few confirmatory tests, however, on some of the swabs taken from the Chevy Suburban that Alec Murdoch drove to the crime scene. Only one of these swabs tested positive for human blood, which came from the steering wheel. Do we know whose blood that belonged to? No, not with certainty. So Agent Nguyen didn't do any of the DNA tests herself, but jurors heard next from SLED forensic scientist Sarah Zapata, who did. Zapata's job is to develop DNA profiles from evidence that gets submitted to the lab, and then she tries to basically identify people who may have contributed to the profile. So she can only tell us whose DNA is likely on a piece of evidence not how it got there. And of course, DNA can come from a variety of sources, blood just being one of them. And what did they learn from her? Well, her testimony was highly technical and got kind of difficult to follow at times. I don't think it told jurors much new information. You know, Paul, Maggie, and Alec's DNA was found in places where you might have expected it, given Ellick's statements that he touched their bloody bodies and checked for a pulse when he found them at the crime scene. Maggie and Ellick's DNA, for instance, were both likely present in that bloodstain collected from the suburban steering wheel. I know there was some talk about the white t-shirt Ellick was wearing at the crime scene. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, so Zapata conducted a confirmatory test for blood on the t-shirt, which indicated no human blood was present, so it tested negative. But defense attorneys asked her about a report SLED received in March 2022, so months after Zapata conducted her test, that claimed the t-shirt had high-impact blood spatter, which would result from someone being close to Maggie and Paul as they were shot. Okay. If I'm understanding this correctly, that means Zapata's test said there was no blood on the shirt, but then there's this conflicting report that comes out months later and says the shirt actually has blood splatter all over it. Yeah, that's right. And this was the subject of a pretrial motion. 
Basically, prosecutors spent a lot of time and money hiring these two outside experts who conducted their own analyses of blood spatter evidence on this white t-shirt. And defense attorneys have accused SLED agents of bullying the experts into saying there was spatter when there actually was not. Which Zapata's testing seems to confirm, correct? Yeah, it seems that way. All right. Was there any other significant testimony today? Yeah. So jurors heard last from Dr. Ellen Reimer, and she's a forensic pathologist who conducted the autopsies on Maggie and Paul. Her testimony was pretty difficult to hear, as you can imagine, and jurors had to view photos that she took during the autopsies showing the extent of Maggie and Paul's injuries. These images were shown only to jurors due to their graphic nature. So we've already heard quite a bit about the injuries Maggie and Paul suffered. Um, did During this testimony, was there any new information provided? Yeah, so Dr. Reimer testified in depth about the two gunshot wounds Paul suffered and the five gunshot wounds to Maggie. And she provided her theories about how each of them were shot. Okay, let's go over Paul's injuries first then. So Dr. Reimer believes Paul was initially shot in the left side of his chest. And she thinks he still would have been standing when he suffered the second shot, which was the fatal shot. And this one entered the top left of his shoulder before traveling up his neck and exiting the top of his right head. And the path of this second bullet suggests Paul's head was turned slightly left toward his shoulder when he was hit. And what about Maggie? Dr. Reimer believes she was initially shot standing up too. And the first two bullets with similar trajectories hit her front rib cage and her front left thigh. Dr. Reimer believes the wound to her abdomen area likely would have caused her to double over in pain. And the pathologist said that that explains the next three gunshots. So Maggie was then shot on the top of her left wrist, and then a fourth shot entered and exited the left of her chest before hitting underneath her left face. Maggie likely fell to the ground after this one, and then she suffered a fifth and final gunshot wound to the back of her head near the base of her skull. And those final two wounds suggested to Dr. Reimer that the killer must have been circling Maggie as they fired. Did either Maggie or Paul have any defensive wounds? No, neither of them did. And does Dr. Reimer know whether they were shot at close range? Yeah, so both of Paul's gunshot wounds have what's called stippling around them, which means they were fired from a range of less than three feet. Wow. Okay, that's a pretty small distance then. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that too. Uh, And for Maggie, Dr. Reimer said her first two gunshot wounds came at close range, but the final three didn't show any signs of that stippling, which suggests she and the killer were moving farther away from one another during the attack. Okay, Jocelyn, what can we expect tomorrow? Tomorrow, defense attorneys will pick up with cross-examining Dr. Reimer. All right. Thank you, Jocelyn. Stay healthy and safe. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you. That's all we have for now. For more in-depth coverage of this trial, as well as the latest news on the Murdoch story at large, stay tuned to postandcourier.com slash Murdoch. 
You can find us on Twitter at Post and Courier. We would love if you could send questions, feedback, and tips to our Murdoch email address. That's Murdoch at postandcourier.com. And please also take a minute to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to keep up to date on the trial, subscribe to Murdoch News, a premium newsletter from the Post and Courier, bringing you exclusive first-hand insight from local South Carolina reporters who have covered this saga from the beginning. Subscribe at postandcourier.com slash Murdoch News, and we'll bring you exclusive reporting on the civil and criminal cases of Alec Murdoch. We'll see you next time.